0: Hey y'all! Welcome back to another episode of Trends in the Podcast. I'm excited that you are here, and this week I'm going to talk to you about my trip to Ghana. Now, the title of this episode is "Going, Going, Back, Back to Ghana, Ghana," and I have not been to Ghana in this lifetime. Where I, I, my first time to Ghana was in this lifetime, but I will tell you about why I may have been to Ghana in a previous lifetime. So, stay tuned. You're listening to The In Podcast. I'm your host, Asha Wilkerson, an attorney by training and an educator at heart. This podcast is all about empowering you to build a business and leave a legacy. Here's the thing. The wealth gap in America is consistently increasing. And while full-time entrepreneurship is not for everyone, even a side hustle can change your financial landscape if you're intentional about using your business to build wealth. I've run my own law firm for over 10 years, and in that time, I've helped countless California businesses go from idea to six figures. On this podcast, we talk about what it truly takes to build a sustainable business and find financial freedom. Let's dive in. All right, everyone, let's get started. I had the fortunate opportunity to go to Ghana for an education conference through my job as a community college educator. As you all know, I run a full-time paralegal program at a community college in Sacramento. Super proud of that. And there were a number of educators who are working with Black students that were invited to attend an education conference in Ghana. So we were able to do that. And uh, I won't comment too much about the actual conference itself. But I do want to tell you a little bit about my experience because it was pretty impactful and not immediately impactful. But after I got back, I feel like things just kind of started to pop up and make sense. And I got, I won't even say clarity on necessarily where I'm going, but understanding on what has happened in the past. So I kind of feel like African Americans in this country in the United States are kind of like adopted children. And no shade to anybody who has adopted children or if you are an adopted child, but I feel like every person wants to know Who their parents are, where they've come from. Most of the folks that I know that have been adopted, if it's an open adoption, they get to meet their parents and that question isn't there. But for the folks who don't know who their birth parents are, it's like, well, where did I come from and why am I here? And how come I'm not quite like this family? But I'm, you know, I I just don't know what it is about me that makes me different. I I just wanna know my origins. And I kind of feel like African American folks in the United States are like adopted children we know that we're not quite like white America or even folks who have immigrated recently from other countries, but we're also not quite African, like not 100% African. There's clearly been some mixing in our bloodline. And sometimes we come against the uncomfortable position of not feeling I will Let me speak for myself. I do not want to speak on behalf of all Black people. I'm not doing that. But I want to say for me, sometimes I come against the uncomfortable position of not feeling all the way American because I don't get all of the rights that like white folks in America enjoy. But I'm definitely not from some other place. I have a unique experience of being uh, brown in this country, which is, again, just a unique experience. And so... Sometimes in the past, and I have met African immigrants who have come over more recently, there's a, a warmth and a welcomeness, but also I'm not quite like them either because the culture is a little bit different. There are lots of similarities, but our experiences are different growing up on different continents. And also the stereotype of Black people in America is a worldwide stereotype. So, if we are perceived to be sort of the bottom, that's sort of the bottom of the barrel and uneducated and prone to violence and all of these negative things, I completely understand why somebody coming to this country for an opportunity would not want to be associated with that. And then you have the folks, the black folks who don't fit any of those stereotypes. Like, I don't understand what the difference is. I'm working, you know, just as hard as you are to try and get to the top two. Can't we all just be friends? Not to say that there's like animosity, but it's not quite this homogeneous fit that you might think would happen, so all that to say. When I was getting ready to go on this trip to Ghana, I've heard many people saying like, oh, Ghana changed my life. I could feel my ancestors. My auntie was like, I know I felt my ancestors. My friend's mom had said that she walked into one of the castles like in the 70s when she was studying abroad in college. And she had a flash that she had been there before, like her soul had been there before. And As badly as I really want to be intuitive, y'all, I don't hear voices. I don't get visions. I don't hear songs. I don't see things. I'm constantly asking, all right, universe, show me. And my intuition does not show up like that. So I'm like, well, maybe I can go and like feel something. But I was kind of thinking I probably wouldn't feel much. But I will say that I was definitely cognizant of my status as an American, even though being Black American, traveling to Africa and wanting to maybe feel like I have come home, but also being reticent because other people may not see me as coming home. So it was just in this interesting position that I was totally open to whatever may happen, but also not wanting to impose or to romanticize a place that I had not yet been to and had not experienced for myself. But I will tell you one of the most impactful experiences that we did was uh, our whole group, which was probably 90% black and 10% other, mostly white and that other, but a couple of Asian folks, a couple of Latino folks as well we went to this area that I can't remember the exact name of, but it's known as the last bath, the last bath. This was the last place that enslaved Africans would be washed and fed before they would then be marched an additional 35 miles to the Cape Coast castle, which is really a dungeon, to be kept there until they were sold to the colonizing powers that were coming to Cape Coast, Ghana, to purchase African slaves, to enslave Africans and take them to the Americas or to other countries. And this place had a powerful, depressing solemn, somber energy about it for understandable reasons. When I got there, the guide for us was explaining that enslaved Africans didn't just come from Ghana, but they may have been walked over from from the east, from Nigeria, or from the north, from Senegal, other countries that surround Ghana that people were forced to walk up to 350 miles to get to Cape Coast to then be sold. And we were probably a group of about 40 or 50 people. And they asked us to wear white, which my friends and I were like, why do we need to wear white? But we were all glad that we complied and brought some some white with us because it wasn't, I don't think that that necessarily connects us more to our ancestors, but that was the ritual that the local folks had asked us to participate in. So we ended up wearing white and, and coming to this land. And they asked us to take our shoes off so that we could ground and connect with the earth. And if you are in that, holistic kind of atmosphere, you know that grounding is where you take your shoes off and you walk or, or you just stand. The earth will take that electrical current out of your body. And so it's called grounding. If you've ever looked at a plug, a three-prong outlet, that third plug that's at the bottom, the third prong that's at the bottom is called the grounding plug. And that helps to just kind of diffuse the energy um, an electrician can probably explain it much better than I can. But taking your shoes off and putting your feet on the earth, uh, not just on the floor, but on the earth, in grass, in dirt, on the sidewalk, just helps to pull some of that electromagnetic energy out of your body and into the ground. And so it is a way to help you relax you know, calm down and get connected and and grounded in your body. So they asked us to take off our shoes. And they told us the background of how people had even got to this place. And oftentimes folks would, again, could have walked from up to 350 miles away. Food was scarce. People, if they were sick, they would just be let out of the chains and left, you know, out there to die by themselves. When there were wild animals around, they told us about how you know, somebody would be sacrificed. They would cut them so that the animals would feed on that person who was not strong enough to make it. And then the rest could pass safely, right? This super traumatic experience of even getting to this place, to this last bath. And it's a river and it was the river that folks would be walked into to be cleaned up. And then they might spend a week at this camp to be fed, to gain more weight and be marched an additional 35 miles once they've kind of come back to life, if you will, to then be sold looking healthy and strong. So we have some leaves that are adorned around our neck. I can't remember the the herb, I think it was, but it's like for protection. And then there was like a little mud marking that they put on us. And we walked, we walked this winding path that couldn't have been more than 100 yards, maybe 150 yards. I'm thinking of like a winding football field and a half worth of distance. But because it was winding and I was towards the back, when I looked up, y'all, I could not see the first person in our group. And as we're walking, people are already emotional because we already know what has happened in this place. But to think about, we're a group of 40 or 50 people. And from my position towards the back, not at the very back, I could not see the first person in our group. Can you imagine what that would be like to be tied to hundreds of other people that as far forward as you look and as far back as you look, you see your friends, family, maybe strangers, because people have been picked up along the way from different tribes, speaking different languages, chained to you. Like that's wild. That is absolutely wild. Just the just the visual of as far as you can see in either direction, you are chained. That was, and again, we were just 40 or 50 people. So imagine hundreds marching at a time. Just wild. So we get down to the river and it's absolutely gorgeous. Of course, because why would it not be gorgeous? It's absolutely gorgeous. And um, there's an arch that says, I should actually just be looking up my photos right now so I can actually see what it says. But it's I think it says like the point of no return or the door of no return or something like that. And they told us, they said, don't walk through that because your ancestors walked through that and they didn't come back. But you are on the return. And so you're not walking through that door because you you were already here. Or I'm sorry, it wasn't the door of no return. It was called the last bath, the last bath. It was this painted archway. They said, don't walk through that archway that says the last bath. Don't do that. And they had us walk around it, go into, you know, and stick our feet into the river. And like, what an emotional experience to know that people that likely people that I have come from had also stood in that same river right? Not the exact same water because the water is always moving, but in that same river. And it was so powerful, especially to see all of us together in that spot, going through our own sort of emotional transformative experience. And then we turn around and we see the sign that says first bath of return. So instead of the last bath, it became the first bath of return. And on the back of that sign, it says, we are back home. And it's it was beautiful because it acknowledged what happened, but then also said, we're not doing that anymore. We're not being sent off anymore. And as visitors to this country, as African-American people, or just as people of the African diaspora, we have come back home. The, the next thing that we did is we had tobacco in one hand and sugar in another hand. And they asked us to do this ceremony, this like release ceremony where they said, I think it was sugar, something that was an accelerant may have been salt. I can't remember. And we were asked to, I don't remember exactly how it went because it's been about a month now since I got back, but we, we just took a minute to acknowledge the generational trauma that black people around the world and others as well, other people who have been colonized, um have experienced, and that even though it was hundreds of years ago, four five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred a thousand years ago, that the the slave trade began, it only ended about five, I think it's five hundred years ago, right? Five fifty maybe that our generations still carry the legacy of that trauma maybe in ways that we don't even notice. And so the release ceremony was asking us to think about that trauma that we carry and then to throw the tobacco leaves into the fire as symbolism for releasing that trauma. So we went around the whole circle and everybody walked up to the fire and threw release their trauma into the fire, which was pretty cool to do. Then the ceremony kind of ended and we were able to like take pictures and, and and just think about again just like the legacy and the history and to think that our ancestors actually survived that, which is wild. Now, another thing that people kept saying, or at least the guides kept saying, like, welcome back, welcome back. And I was thinking, oh, okay, I know Ghana did this year of return to try and get, you know, African diaspora individuals to come back to Ghana. And I'm like, oh, it's just an economic ploy. I don't know if that's really great for the country. But when I really listened, this guy said, no, really, welcome back. You, you are your ancestor, like you are your ancestors returned. That will Okay. He said, no, because when y'all or when our ancestors were captured and marched and sold off, the people who were not captured remained, but were looking for the captured Africans to come back. And nobody knew what was going to happen on the other side. Like people knew it wasn't good, but there wasn't this understanding that people would not come back. And so you're hoping, like thinking if someone gets kidnapped, you're always hoping that that person is going to come back. And so they said that as a country, as a group of people, they have been waiting, had been waiting for years for their loved ones their their parents, their siblings, their cousins, their aunts and uncles to come back. And now, recently, that especially African Americans but also just pan African citizens of the world are coming back to Ghana, they said, "You are your ancestors returned, you are finally home, and whoo, child, when I tell you like I didn't have a reaction right away, but like powerful, powerful because when I really think about it, anybody who's in the African diaspora. Our ancestors had to survive hundreds of years under colonial oppression and not just, oh, we don't like Black people, but transportation across the Atlantic, whippings and beatings, malnourishment, subjugated rights, right? Like being beaten, being controlled, being killed if you looked at somebody the wrong way. So for me to be existing in 2022 in Oakland, California, USA is a complete miracle in my book. And I think often, I know often we talk about the current state of Black folks and of people of color in the United States. And I understand why things are the way they are, but often we're talking about our existence and our history of of just one of struggle and hardship and You know, we don't let it hold us down or anything like that. But that is a part of the history that we carry, a part of the trauma that we carry. But to hear the other side and to really think about, man, I come from some strong people to be sitting here in Oakland, California, (laughs) USA, in 2022, talking into this microphone so that you can hear it about my experience in Ghana. I mean, so many people had to survive in order for me to be here. And that is wild and incredible. And I think nothing short of miraculous. But another thing that stood out to me was after we left the last bath, we ended up going to the Cape Coast Castle the next day. And that is, they call it a castle, but really it was, it was a fort that had different holding cells for enslaved Africans before they would be sent out. And that was actually called the door of no return because they knew that once people were marched out of that last door and onto the boat, they were not coming home and it's wild they call it a castle because it really is a dungeon and it's big it's not huge but it's big it's incredible that it still stands today and i think the most impactful part was touring the male slave dungeon where you walk down this steep incline and it's damp it's dank it's dark there are very narrow slits at the very top like way above ground for light And they tell you and you, it becomes very obvious that there are no toileting facilities and that if you were fed and you had to use the bathroom, you just had to use the bathroom right where you were. So they said at some point, some archeologists came in, I think in the late nineties, like 1998, 97, 98 or early 2000s, and started digging at the floor and realized that there was about three or four feet of feces that was impacted on the floor because there were no toileting facilities, no buckets, no uh, door opening for people to go outside and use the restroom. And when you want to talk about dehumanizing people, like that is incredible, absolutely incredible. And then these jokers, these these. Uh, colonizers built the chapel for the fort, right on top of the male slave dungeon. Like, really? (laughs) I mean, really though? Like So now you're praising God on top of the heads of these enslaved black men. And not just enslaved black men, but the cells were small. And they said that they would have about a thousand people in these areas at any given time. And I can't describe, let's see, how could I describe how big they were? Not very, like maybe your average bedroom size times three, let's say. So most bedrooms aren't aren't very big. Maybe like a little smaller than a hotel room, a little smaller than your average hotel room. And then there would be a thousand people in three of those compartments because they weren't all next door. They had doors. So there were three separate areas. And so there were a thousand people on average in any of these holding cells held below ground, crazy, and so when I was just thinking about I mean that was really hard, and especially when you walk into a place and you just think, "Wow, I'm here, I have agency, I can get out when I want, I can fly back home, I have the money to do what I need to do, and it's still impactful and powerful on your senses, on your state of being, on your mind, all of that stuff, like imagine. Being in there and and not knowing what is next and not having the tools to be able to get out of that situation. Now you'll hear on next week's podcast with Devon Travel, who is the founder of Play Black Wall Street. I met him actually in Ghana. And uh, we were just talking about learning about these experiences and and the events that black folks went through back then. Would we have the audacity, the courage, the fight to fight back. You know, would we have been Harriet Tubman leading people through the Underground Railroad or would we be sitting, you know, too afraid to make a move? And to be honest, I don't know. I'm not sure because the quote unquote freedom fighting that I do now talking about Black people and brown people starting businesses and building wealth and you know being free and self-determination, all of that stuff. There's no threat to my life when I talk about that or threat to my safety or my livelihood. But if I really had to make a choice to fight these folks with whips and chains and guns for my freedom and to try and free my people and really actually risk losing my life, I don't know how I would respond. I would like to think that I would be the same fighter that I am today, but to be honest, y'all, it's a totally, totally different situation. So I'm just not sure about that, but it's something to think about. So after we get out of uh, the dungeon, and then there's, of course, the female side as well. And it just really hit home that when we dismiss the effects of slavery, first of all, it wasn't just a little blip in time. It wasn't you know, a couple months, a couple years, it was hundreds of years that the slave trade occurred around the world. And it wasn't just that people got taken in, and that's big enough in itself, but it was the intentional destruction of black families as well because it wouldn't be the whole family that was taken it might be one or two people in the family and even here on us soil moms and dads would be sold separately kids would be auctioned off right the family unit was not respected at all and it it and it makes sense that you would destroy the family unit to weaken any kind of nuclear power source that people could create together. Because if you can't be with those who are close to you or those who you love, it's hard to do anything on your own. It's not impossible, but it just makes it a lot harder. And we can see that today if we've broken families, divorced families, or even just family spread across the world. Like I'm the only one who's in Oakland, California. My mom's in Portland, Oregon. I got a cousin in Miami, a couple cousins in Miami, another cousin in New York some family in Seattle, right? Where if we were all in one place, we would be a stronger, more mobilized family unit, but we're all spread out. So our power is a little bit diffuse. So that was interesting to see because I think we look at what is happening today. And if we don't go back and learn our history, we don't know that some of these family disruption practices have hundreds of years of legacy, Right. There was a guy from a community college in San Diego who was there and he's Mexican. And he was saying, I can relate it to what's happening today in immigration and family disunification where kids are being put in one camp and parents are being sent to another. And they're being if they're being deported, being deported separately and not allowing families to come back together or even to stay regardless of the reason why people are here right? Those legacies are still present today. Um, Another thing that was actually really powerful was that in school, Black history generally starts with slavery. In school in the U.S., Black history generally starts with slavery. But when I was talking to people and people were talking to us in Ghana, it didn't start with slavery. That wasn't the beginning of Black people in Africa at all. There were hundreds of years of Black people prior to that, inventors and scientists and all kinds of things that weren't a part of the quote unquote Western world, so weren't recognized as scholars and leaders and things like that. But nevertheless, there was a legacy, a history of hundreds of years of thriving Black people on the continent of Africa. And that was empowering because even though we are moving forward and not talking about slavery or the effects of slavery every day, it's one of those things where you don't realize how depressing it is to know that your history in this country starts with enslavement. And it hadn't occurred to me just because I hadn't been exposed to it. I mean, I knew logically that there was history before that, of course, but being someone who is African American, not being able to trace my roots back to a particular country or even past like four or five generations in the United States, I I didn't have that connection because I had not been to West Africa and couldn't see it. So it was just beautiful to hear the story told from a different perspective where the story starts before this tragedy of legacy, before arguably the most atrocious human rights violation in the history of the world. So that was super empowering. Um, Let's see, what else did I learn and come to know? I think it is, you know, go in the same vein of uh, that kind of adoption parallel, I think it is really important that we know and understand whoever we are, whether we are African American or Mexican or you know Irish American, whatever, it is so empowering to know where your family comes from. And so I would encourage you to Trace your family roots if you can and go and visit the lands that you think you may have come from if you're not sure. There is something very, very empowering to know that somebody in your family came from this country. I think especially for those of us who have experienced colonization. Even if you were Latin American, if you're a Latin American, you have definitely experienced colonization for sure, right? So a lot of folks claim the country that they most recently immigrated from, and that is awesome, but that country was also colonized too. Like Mexico was colonized by the Spanish and, you know, indigenous folks were almost completely wiped out. And so what is the origin story? What is the origin story? I don't know. I can't answer that, but I think it is a really fascinating exercise to go and to visit and to see and to just get a different feel because when the story is told by different people, it's always told a little bit differently. So the story starts in Ghana way before the slave trade, which is super empowering to know that my origins didn't start in America, but to know that they had started years before that. Super empowering. And I'm still, you know, every time I do something, I, I've i always wanted to lead a retreat. I've talked to a couple of different people about leading a retreat and stuff like that. And I think I might do the first one in Ghana, either Ghana or Mexico. I was looking at Mexico before to do a retreat for entrepreneurs to have a place to relax and rest and then also plan in business. But I think maybe Ghana might be the first place because I think it is so important for Black folks in particular to have some sense of identity that comes before the history of the United States. Not to say that there needs to be an over-identification with the history, but just to know that our history isn't all bad, it isn't all suffering, it isn't all struggle. And I think the best way to get that and to see people who are cheering and rooting for you, and if you haven't been to a country as a Black person, if you haven't been to a country that is predominantly Black, you got to go. It's amazing. Even going to the South, like Atlanta, where you see like Black people everywhere in different positions of power and stuff, it's a truly different experience than what you get on the West Coast or in the Northwest um, or even the Northeast. There's something about seeing yourself in other people who are doing well, thriving, and experiencing life from a beautiful place that is empowering and makes you, makes me want to do better. So if you are not on my email list just yet, please, please go and sign up. You can go to the WilkersonLawOffice.com contact and you can scroll all the way down to the bottom of the page and click on join the email list if you want to, you could also go to my Instagram bio, Asha Wilkerson ESQ, click on the link in my bio and join the mailing list. And I promise that I will keep you up to date as I start to plan this trip to Ghana, probably sometime next September, maybe October, but probably September to just go and experience and to really take some time to dive into who we are and um, yeah, really just who we are who we want to be, who we are, who we say that we're going to be. You'll hear next week. I lose it a little bit next week. I get a little emotional next week as I'm talking with Devon about the projection of black wealth in America. And you'll hear me talk about how we are so overdetermined. Everybody has a plan for us sometimes except for us. And it's time for us to step into our power, reclaim our crowns, if you will, and to start making decisions about our own lives and where we plan to go. So join my mailing list and then stay tuned for next week's podcast episode as I wrap with Devon about not only his game, Play Black Wall Street, but also his experience in Ghana as well. All right, y'all. I hope you have a beautiful week. Thanks for listening. Hit me up and let me know if you have any questions. Ciao. Hey family, I am so thankful that you are here listening to Transcend the Podcast. And I just want to make sure you know the best way to stay in contact with me. And that's through joining my email newsletter.